0: Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Utah lawmakers who approved a luxury ski resort took $100,000 in donations from the developer. The Latter-day Saint Temple Square of tomorrow could transform Salt Lake City's downtown. And because their water is poisoned, Navajo in San Juan County rely on a church well for water. Joining me today are Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Emily, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Real estate uh, reporter T- Tony Semerat is with us. Tony, thanks. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Hello. Uh, water and public lands reporter Leah Larson. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year. And news columnist Robert Gurkey is with us. Thank you.
2: Hey, good morning, Tom.
0: Thank good you. morning. Uh, let me start with uh, Emily Anderson uh, Stern, the a headline, Utah lawmakers who approved a luxury ski resort took $100,000 in donations from the developer. Uh, so, Emily, what uh, what is this development? Where is it?
3: So, in order to explain the development, you have to have a little bit of background about uh, the entity that, that, appro- that approved it. So, uh, it was approved by an entity called the Military Installation Development Authority, um, which was created in 2007. Essentially, to help um, use military lands to partner with private entities to develop those lands. Uh, So, you know, if people are driving on I 15 at Near Hill Air Force Base, they'll see the new Jimmy John's or Starbucks pop up, right? So that kind of came came about through the uh, Military Installation Development Authority. If you go back to when we had the Olympics here in Utah um, in 2002, uh, there, there used to be a hotel that the Air Force used at Snow Basin um ski resort uh, but that was torn down to make room for the Olympics so as part of the 2002 um a 2002 uh defense authorization bill uh, Congress gave a parcel of land in Park City to the Air Force and said that they could lease it out to a private entity to develop um, another recreation facility uh so when Mida came along, you know f- five years later in 2007 uh they were essentially the ones who were given the reins on this project um and so now we're seeing uh you know these some of that land um and then other land that's attached to this project uh be be developed to essentially create um it, it essentially was going to be a new ski resort, but uh, in August they partnered with Deer Valley and it's going to make Deer Valley a much, much bigger ski resort.
0: Um, so I want to understand this, uh, the military purpose here again. Um, what are, are there other examples of this? Because, you know, at uh, a hotel, I, I, I guess Air Force personnel could go and rest and recreate. Is, is that recreate? Is that the, is that the idea? That was the purpose here?
3: Yeah, that's the purpose Um, there, you know, this, it's a pretty big development. If you're over by Jordan Reservoir, you'll see a lot of it um, being worked on, Uh, there are going to be seven new hotels, but just one of those hotels will have rooms for uh, service members and veterans. Uh, And that particular hotel will have 100 rooms where those individuals can get um, will have a discounted rate and will be have preferred status for making reservations so that's 100 rooms out of this 387 room conference hotel uh so you know there's the potential for um military gatherings there since there will be conference rooms and whatnot Uh, but uh that that's essentially what what's going on up there
0: so otherwise, this is just a big development, right? But but there is this uh, MIDA or Military Installation Development Authority um, uh, involvement, w- which I take it is key, right? And and a couple of uh, Senate Republicans, key Senate Republicans, are on the board of, of MIDA. Is that the case?
3: Yeah. So, uh, Senate President Stuart Adams, and then the chair of the Executive Appropriations Committee for the Legislature, Jerry Stevenson are both um, on the board. uh, And they've been on the board since, you know, since the entity was created and before they even joined the legislature. Uh, Stuart Adams chairs the board. The board is made up of seven members. Um, Five of those members are appointed by the governor, and one is appointed by the Speaker of the House and the other by the Senate president. And So currently, Stuart Adams is a self-appointed member, um, and Jerry Stevenson, technically, is a governor appointee. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, you found an uh, excess of $100,000 in donations uh, to, uh, I guess, a lot of this went to Stuart Adams, right? Um, from from who?
3: Right. So over $100,000 in donations went to Senate Republican leadership. And the majority of that did go to Stuart Adams um, and political action committees that he controls. And those came from... Um, Ex-Utah Development LLC or Xtel, the company that's uh, developing the majority of that area, the Mayf- what's called the Mayflower area by Jordan L Reservoir. Uh, and they also came from the owner of Xtel. His name's Gary Barnett. He's a New York City developer who specializes in luxury real estate. Um, and then there were a number of donations from his wife, his children, his children's spouses, Um, And those all added up to just to about $112,500. But then there were also a few smaller donations to um, say, there was a $20,000 donation donation from Burnett and his wife to Governor Spencer Cox earlier this, or in 2023. Um, And then there were some smaller donations to Utah House Republicans, about $10,000.
0: What about the timing of these uh, donations is, uh, is it was around the time the decisions were being made what uh, what about the timing
3: So the donations have essentially been coming in since about 2018 when um Extel first partnered with MIDA to essentially build this resort uh and you know a lot of the decisions are still being made through the development um you know, MIDA is working to make sure that all the infrastructure is built, um, that there are uh, that is, there's money from the state to have the infrastructure built, uh, and you know, it. What's interesting is the largest don- individual donation of the bunch, which was which was about six thousand dollars from Ex Utah Development LLC, um, came a week after Deer Valley Deer Valley publicly announced that. It, um, it was going to partner with Excel to operate the ski train at Mayflower Resort.
0: So uh, you point out your story that uh, Barnett, the head of this company, developer, um, he usually gives to Democrats. This is unusual given to Republicans.
3: Yeah, he's a pretty prolific Democratic donor. Um, He, you know, for years has given a large amount of money to – uh, democrats across the country and both in new york um where he's from but also in other states
0: now what is uh what is extel or barnett to say do they say anything about this
3: yeah so i i talked to uh brooke hans who's the vice president of development for excel and she said well in utah um Well, I'll just read from her quote here, in the state of Utah, we can look around and there's a clear understanding of the importance of the Republican Party here, and particularly President Stuart Adams. Um, And then she went on to, you know, praise the way that the Republican Party has uh, managed and supported Utah through its um, government practices. Uh, And so she said, you know, because of that, she could see why Gary Barnett would want to make these donations um, to Utah Senate Republicans.
0: Of course, the key question here is: Do these donations make a difference? Do, do the donations influence decisions? What does Senator Adams say?
3: He and you know he just sent a statement back over email and basically said that campaign contributions do not influence his decisions or votes. Um, and then he talked about the way that um, Mida has benefited the, the state through bringing economic development here.
0: And then he gave an example. I'm reading from the story. Uh, he says I handle a lot of alcoholic uh, alcohol legislation, and I get checks from entities that are involved in alcohol. But he he says it doesn't have done, doesn't, doesn't affect my decisions in that area.
3: Yeah, and that was actually Jerry Stevenson. Oh, that was Jerry him.
0: Stevenson. Okay,
3: right. And um, so he, you know, he said that he tries to, he doesn't think that those contributions. Um, influence his votes uh, or his decisions and he thinks that you know he says that he always tries to make those decisions put legislation together for the right reasons
0: um in the meantime you you talk to your story about uh mida i think a lot of us don't know about i didn't know about mida um uh, extel uh, gary barnett says at least three spokesperson that uh th- this was key they needed the inf- you know they needed involvement favorable decisions from mida to even get this uh development off the ground
3: right so you know the biggest challenge to, for such a big development where you're developing this massive ski area is getting the infrastructure in place to build it right the roads that get to the resort uh you got to have the water um electricity etc and uh he said without mida um, the state entity that he Probably would have never pursued a project like this in Utah. Um, they are essentially the reason that he decided to build here was because he could, you know, work with MIDA to uh, get this off the ground.
0: Um, uh, both Senator Adams and Senator Stevenson uh, uh, took pains, I think, to point out that they were they were appointed to this commission before they even ran for office.
3: Right. Um, they they were and. Uh, when and they stayed on the commission after they um secured office. Uh over since uh Jerry Stevenson joined the legislature in 2010. Um he also has worked, you know, both with MIDA and the legislature to help, I guess, change statute to make MIDA more more effective. Um so he talked he talked to me a little bit about how over the years uh you know MITA's kind of expanded, had new projects. Um, and to accomplish some of those goals, like the ways that it's developed the west side of Hill air Force space, or now you know you have Mayflower um up in uh by Jordan L Reservoir. He said they had to tweak the statue to make it be able to do some of these things. So um he's introduced about a dozen bills that have changed Mida's statue over the year, and also you know worked on some other bills that have uh, made some of the land use decisions up there a little bit um, smoother, easier,
0: well, thanks for telling us about this. Um, before we go to Robert Gurke, I want to have you talk about it. Somewhat related, not directly related, but uh, I'll just read the headline. This was published from Emily Anderson uh, in the Tribune uh, this morning. As an audit of the AG's office ramped up, Sean Reyes made rare donations to House Republicans. Uh, give us your couple-minute version of this story, Emily.
3: Right. So, you know, we've seen Sean Reyes' name in headlines quite a bit over the last several months uh, for you know, his relationship to anti-human trafficking activist Tim Ballard, who's been accused of sexual assault, uh, and for his connections to, uh, the, the organization that Tim Ballard founded, but he's no longer part of Operation Underground Railroad. Uh, you know, as some of these, um, as this has come up, the legislature's, you know, this has tried to mull like how can we hold the attorney general's office accountable Um, the previous two attorney generals left under scandal um, General Sean Reyes will not be running again uh, and so you know in mid-October that, that's when the legislature first started talking about okay like how can we change things around the attorney general's office so we don't have this keep happening over and over um, and so after they kind of talked about, they started talking about um, appointing the attorney general. Um, and on October 12th, Reyes' office released a statement criticizing such a move. And then on October 19th, uh, Sean Reyes gave just over $1,000 to the uh, Utah House Republican Election Committee, which is uh, led, currently led by um, Speaker Mike Schultz. Uh, and then in on November 14th, uh, a subcommittee in the legislature, the legislative audit subcommittee, which Schultz now co-chairs, it was at the time co-chaired by former Speaker, speaker Brad Wilson. They decided to move forward with an audit of the attorney general's office. And on November 20th, uh, Sean Reyes then gave another just over a thousand dollars to the Utah House Republican Election Committee. Um, so those dates, it these contributions aren't super common from Sean Reyes. He he usually spends a lot of his campaign funds on, on, you know, his own campaign related uh initiatives, projects. Um, you know, in the since the last contributions he made that were over $1,000, according to his own campaign finance reports were actually to the Utah Republican Party when he was running for re-election in 2020. Um, so it's not common for him to make make Contributions to other political entities. Well, Emily Anderson
0: Stern, thanks so much for talking about these stories.
3: Thanks,
0: Tom. So, Robert uh, Gerke, this is this is an, you know, kind of an age-old question, right? That uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, politicians receive money, but is this access or is this influence? Uh,
2: what uh, What
0: do you think about these stories?
2: Well, you're right. It is it is the age-old question, and in some ways, it, it's two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, it. The, I think stewart and jerry are probably being honest when they talk about how they they wanted this project done regardless of who was doing it and who was giving them money but whether it's whether it's a pay-to-play or a gratuity is sort of immaterial. The um, they are benefiting from their official actions and that's pretty unseemly um and especially when we have this pattern that emily noted that, that, where where it's rare well it's never happened that the donor has given money and were it not for this uh, spe- special treatment or this big development that they got, they're pro- it's hard to imagine that they would have ever have actually given money to them. And, you know, it kind of goes to the whole structure of Mida, where the, the military itself is getting very little benefit from this. They're getting an opportunity to book a block of rooms. And, and in this seven-building resort, it's a massive luxury resort, I mean that's a license to print money for Excel they're going to make millions of dollars on it so a small $100,000 donation is just is is a rounding error for them uh and and so we've got this we've got this situation where these powerful people are taking power frankly from the counties and the local governments that would otherwise be uh shepherding this project through were it to go through and then and then benefiting from it politically uh it, it's it's Look, I don't want to say that this is the way it works, because, but to some extent it is, uh, and, and it's kind of unseemly and, and it's dirty, and I think it's why people don't have a whole lot of faith in the, you know, the that government operates above board all the time. Um, you know, Xcel, uh, they're they're moving forward with this project, but it's going to be a huge windfall for them when they get this when they get this up and running. Uh, and what's the benefit for the people of Utah? Well, the local governments end up losing a good chunk of their tax revenue um, because it's being sucked up by this Mida project. Uh, and so, you know, it, there's and 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 this Mida thing—it started as a way to keep Hill Air Force Base in place. You know, they wanted to create a military industrial uh, installation division up in up by Hill Air Force Base where they could attract businesses that would. Sort of bolster the uh, importance of Hill, but as you can see, it's become something vastly different from that, uh, and and it's being done so again to take power from the local governments, accrue power to these uh, legislators who run the operation, and you know, and and it ends up benefiting them politically and benefiting a small group of powerful wealthy people uh, like Excel and, and Gary Barnett. So you know, it's something that I think voters should be aware of and, and i'm glad emily did this story and and probably needs a little bit more scrutiny in the future
0: we're going to uh, take a break you're listening to behind the headlines the weekly news roundup from utah public radio and the salt lake tribune following a break we'll be talking with salt lake tribune real estate reporter tony samarad here's the headline the latter-day saint temple square of tomorrow could transform salt lake City's downtown we'll have more following this break Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, uh, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to Salt Lake Tribune real estate reporter Tony Semrad. Tony, thanks for joining us. You bet. So uh, this is uh, uh, this is quite the story. Um, the Latter Day Saint Temple Square of tomorrow could transform Salt Lake City's downtown. Um, this is a, a document, I guess, a, a vision. Uh, it's not been approved, I guess we should say right off the top, but uh, uh, boy, if it were, uh, what a transformation for downtown Salt Lake City. So what, what is this document?
4: So what what the Tribune has reported on here um, is um, a, a kind of a master plan concept um, that has emerged from, um, you know, somewhere within the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, it was a document developed Um, to kind of provide an overall vision for um, the Latter-day Saint campus around Temple Square that appears to have been developed kind of leading up to summer of of 2020. That's the the date on the version that that we obtained. Uh, And, you know, it's really quite an elaborate um, vision, as you say, um, describes itself as sort of a bold vision for this kind of panoply of new institutional buildings and religious monuments across kind of an eight-block contiguous footprint um, downtown that would have a whole bunch of new green space and water features and really kind of create this sort of um, park-like campus um, um, for the faith uh, downtown.
0: So uh, several key buildings would be torn down, I understand, if, if this plan were fully implemented.
4: Yeah. Now, um, let me put another bright underline uh, underneath the, the idea that this has um, this has been shelved. We we worked um, we sought comment on this um, when the plan first emerged uh, on social media over this summer, over this last summer, and they've been uh, very uh, consistent in wanting to distance themselves from key elements of this plan. But yes, indeed, um, the uh, proposal on uh, uh, contemplated tearing down the uh, church office building um, the uh, Joseph Smith Memorial Building, which a lot of people know as Hotel Utah. And then there was this idea of actually moving uh, uh, the assembly hall, a very kind of familiar building um, um, on the west side of the of the sort of general area around Temple Square, uh, considered moving Tem- assembly hall um, f- further west as um, um part of a vision of kind of creating that end of the campus or fashioning that end of the campus into kind of an arrival point for for guests and you know this this has very clearly been written from a a a missionary perspective the the vision is to increase annual attendance at temple square which is obviously a major tourist draw for for downtown from about you know sort of three to five million visitors a year now to as many as ten a year, ten million a year, um, in 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 the years to come. And it it the the de- demolitions that you mentioned are part of this notion of making the 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 temple itself, which as we all know is undergoing some pretty major renovations itself right now, to make the temple really the sort of visual center of the entire campus, and so these proposed uh, uh, demolitions would sort of clear the way for new views of the temple from around uh, uh, downtown. So really, you know, in terms of the development, but also in terms of, you know, sort of from a spiritual perspective, this remake, uh, this proposed remake, would really kind of put the temple at the center of, uh, you know, conceptually and and physically of the whole development.
0: You know, uh, some people you know, c- come to Salt Lake City never having been here and expect the temple to be uh, kind of the prominent feature on the skylight. And they find out differently. I guess this would uh, uh, reverse that a little bit. Uh, I want to before I go on to acknowledge David Noyce, who your co-author on the story here. Um, so in, the, in this story, you say that if this whole campus were implemented, it'd be, it'd be, it would be about two thirds the size of Vatican City.
4: Yeah, about about eighty acres. Um, um, it's uh, all you know, except for um, three very small parcels in that um, eight-block scheme. It's all all and land that's owned by uh, uh, the church, and and you know the the uh, speculation has often been over the last decade that that a lot of this w- you know would ultimately develop be developed. In particular, there's a surface parking lot. Kind of in the 300 West area, uh, that that you know, um, not uncommonly sits empty. It's such a choice block. The church owns the entire thing. There's been speculation that that surface parking lot just east of the Triad Center um, would be developed. And so you know, we've um, we, we've had we've had glimmers of what um, the church might ultimately do um uh, emerge over the last uh over the last years and i think now with the uh 2034 olympics maybe coming into a little bit more focus this idea of what is the guest experience on temple square has you know sort of risen in consideration and i think uh kind of brings this glimpse or this snapshot into kind of sharper focus you know just what what might the what might the church do with that with that property that it owns downtown? It's a very interesting question, with a lot of implications for downtown. Obviously,
0: this would have a very high price tag, I would imagine, if it were implemented.
4: Yeah, I mean, clear clearly in the billions again. With it, um, you know, kind of um, suspended or shelved um, until the church takes this up again. We don't, we won't really have a, a specific price tag, and I suspect this would go. In phases now, uh, you know, and and, and uh, so uh, you know, tying a price tag with any one of those um, might be a little bit difficult. It's it's very important to note that uh, you know, church officials consider their hands full at this point with what's going on on Temple Square. Now, this this renovation of the the temple itself and kind of environs has uh, gotten a lot more complicated as they've dug in. Um, it, it looks like uh, that's now set for um, completion around uh, 2026, which is, uh, you know, they've pushed that timeline out. So they're very much focused on what's going on there now, and, uh, you know, this this sort of planning process over the next uh, 10 or 12 years is, uh, you know, at least in terms of what the church is telling us, is sort of on a back burner until they get the work that's at hand now completed.
0: One, uh, what I did from this document that really jumped out at me from your reporting. Um, and again, this you know a lot of this is brainstorming, right? But um, one idea would be to repurpose the existing Relief Society building into a fully functioning temple, though not dedicated. or it could be dedicated to periodically. The idea would be f- uh, for visitors to be able to come and go into a temple. Some visitors come and they, they're disappointed they can't go into the Salt Lake Temple.
4: Oh, yeah and and you know uh as uh latter-day saints will tell you this has a kind of a fascinating almost kind of theological component to it right that um um i think visitors you know there is a there is a kind of visitor that comes to temple square and expects to have a tour of this uh, magnificent historic building and of course that is closed uh to non-members and so this is sort of an idea to create an additional attraction on temple square if you will that would let people kind of um you know um, see see what the what they might have seen if they were able to go go into the temple but yeah it's got some got some interesting kind of religious aspects to it too
0: uh this would uh, this plan would have an effect on traffic what uh, what are they proposing C- closing some streets and what what are they what's the proposal
4: yeah, it might be the might be the biggest implication of this plan overall beyond the idea of developing that full kind of eight block footprint. Um as it's own there are there are extensive uh um you know changes um in transportation uh, uh they they're proposing closing portions of West Temple or at this plan at least contemplates closing portions of West Temple. First Avenue and 200 West and then um there are there are land bridges proposed on a couple of other major streets and again this is uh, you know this traffic kind of runs through this eight block area now and 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 this this idea is to sort of maybe streamline some of that traffic and and kind of make this more of a cohesive self-contained kind of campus but you know urban urban planners we've talked to have have some concerns about that the idea that it would kind of reduce connectivity downtown um in um, you know with the potential of kind of isolating temple square from from the rest of the city um but you know the probably the more important point there is uh you know an, an interest in uh among public officials to have this be a kind of a transparent participative um, process as the church develops the plan for Temple Square to involve the people um, that are involved in planning um, The downtown as a whole and to kind of make that a broader debate rather than an internal church debate. be
0: uh, You got a comment from reed Ewing a professor uh, of planning at University of Utah He talks about this connectivity issue, but he also says another uh, problem he could see is that it would turn this into a theme park and he says he didn't you know, like that. You got some other more positive comments from others. Uh, I, I guess the reaction is mixed.
4: Yeah, that, um, that that's an interesting theme, if you will, the the notion of um, this kind of having a theme park feel. And I think part of what contributed contributes to that is the plan does contemplate a, a kind of a self-contained conveyance or transit loop that would carry people around portions of the campus. And I think that, um has brushed some people um the wrong way um just you know does that does that comport with the notion of kind of serenity and and that that and and other sort of um tones that we that we feel with with temple square would that would that be a little bit too theme parky kind of thing um the, the there's been considerable considerable debate as we might expect on social media and that's starting to fan out to 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 people in the urban urban planning world. But yeah, you're right. Um, uh, there, there, we had other you know kind of positive comments about what this sort of investment downtown might mean and and especially uh, you know, a lot of positive reactions to the notion of infusing a lot of green space into this, um, into this campus and making it kind of a downtown uh, you know, an area with almost like a park kind of feel.
0: Well, we encourage people to go and read the story. Much else there. Uh, Tony Simrad, uh, along with David Noyce, uh, authors of this uh, story. Uh, again, we emphasize here: this is uh, it was a draft; it's not approved. Um, but uh, interesting to speculate what might happen down the road. Uh, Tony, thanks so much. Hey, you bet. Uh, Sir so Robert Gurki, what do you think about this one?
2: Hey, uh, I think uh, I think as you know it is a draft, but it kind of gives an indication of the vision I think that they might have for for redeveloping it. Um, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that plans or hopes or, you know, sort of long-term goals of redeveloping this property are off the table. So, you know, that that it is important to kind of see what they're, where they see this going. I don't think it's too surprising necessarily that they would be looking to redevelop part of it because, you know, the, the church office building is an old building. It's frankly a pretty ugly building. Um, and so, you know, the, the, that part in particular seems to make sense to, you know, look at, um, I, I don't necessarily have any issues with them going down this road because, you know, it's, it's sort of part of the, their property for one thing, but uh, as long as they comply with the rules and normal ro- rules and laws and ordinances and don't get a ton of special treatment, uh, to make it happen and don't disrupt the rest of downtown, Temple Square is iconic, as you mentioned, and you can't watch a jazz game on national TV or a football game, or a University of Utah football game without seeing those images of the temple where it's it's inextricably intertwined with the identity of Salt Lake City. Uh, and And the LDS church has put its mark on downtown, both through Temple Square, church office building, but also City Creek. And so that's not going away. Uh, I don't think they're going to take the team down the, the daybreak like they did the bees uh, like the, like the owners did to the bees. So it, it makes sense that they're going to be there. they're going to have a footprint and it it probably makes sense for them to be looking uh, long term to um, to improve that area. So you know it, but I'm, I'm glad that t- uh, Tony and, and Dave, got this because it does kind of put people on notice that you know there's there could be changes coming and it lets the public have input on that uh early on
0: well we'll uh, go to a break and uh when we come back we're going to be talking with water and land use reporter leah larson the headline because their water is poisoned navajo and san juan county rely on a church well for water you're listening to behind the headlines the weekly news roundup from utah public radio and the salt lake tribune more following this break Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn to water and land use reporter Leah Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune. Leah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's
1: great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this story.
0: Yeah, interesting story, important story. Um, So uh, you're talking about uh, Navajo folks in San Juan County, right, southeastern Utah. There's a photo at the very beginning of the story. A gentleman named Norman Sam is filling up a jug of water. Uh, Why is he filling up the the jug of water? Doesn't he have water at home?
1: (laughs) Great question. Um, Yeah, he does have water at home, but a a lot of people on the reservation, because of the long history of mining, um, and uranium mining specifically, uh, the aquifer has been poisoned, so they don't really trust the water if they have access to it, and as you probably know, a lot of people living on the reservation don't have access to running water at all, but those that do... Are wary of the water, so a lot of them will come to this mission and fill up jugs like Norman Sam did, and that's what they use for their drinking water um, because they trust it. They they rely on it as a clean source of water for drinking and cooking, and yeah.
0: So this is the Episcopal Church there in Bluff, I guess, right? Um, And and they've made this uh, well available. They have a caretaker there. I guess you can come up and, and, and use that water uh, but but uh, I guess there are concerns that the, that aquifer that where where the well is drawing water could uh, in the future um, have problems.
1: Right. So the property is um, the Saint Christopher's Mission, which is part of the Episcopal Church of Navajo Land, and um, it was it celebrated its 80th year last year, and it's just a beautiful campus um, part of the the mission of the Episcopal church and building this property was to train Navajo in like trades. So they taught them masonry. So there's all these buildings that were handmade and uh, hand carved. Um, it's just a really lovely place. And it sits directly below this mesa called the bluff bench. Um, it's across the San Juan river from the, the Navajo nation um, right below this bench called the bluff bench. Um, And so for 80 years, it's had this pristine water source that it's been providing to the community without any limitation. You can come and take as much water as you want. But directly above the mission on the bluff bench, there's a bunch of Bureau of Land Management land and uh, state trust lands land, um, which sometimes is called Sitla land, if you've ever heard Sitla, same thing. It's a state land that was given to the state at the time of statehood and The purpose of this land is to um, maximize the most value, draw the most value from the land, and then invest that money into public schools. So SITLA, or the State Trust Lands Administration, has this mission to derive as much value as possible from its land. And so the land above the bluff bench, um, there's been some oil and gas exploration. There's nothing developed there right now. It's completely undeveloped. But there's been some interest in oil and gas development. Um, which has the Navajo Nation concerned and the, the mission concerned because they don't want their aquifer to get spoiled like other aquifers have in San Juan County and Four Corners region.
0: Yeah, there's a history here, right? Uh, so I could I could see why some of these folks are skeptical. Uh, what is the tr- State Trust Lands Administration saying?
1: So the State Trust Lands Administration is adamant that you know it it has has an objective, it must, it's charged by the state to derive the most value from its land to help Utah's school kids. Um, Right now, there are no plans in the works to develop oil and gas. I think that's important to say. The only plan they have in the books is to build a 1000 acre solar farm. Um, So that's a little less concerning, but there's, there's nothing stopping them in the future from drilling oil and gas wells and developing it for that as well. So I think that's the concern. Not just with the St. Christopher's Mission, but also with uh, Bluff because back in 2018, Bluff incorporated as a town um, and included a really, it's only a town of like a few hundred people, but it included like really large boundaries, which include the Bluff bench, which include the St. Christopher's Mission um, because Bluff too is worried about um, having control over its its future and future development and they want to protect their aquifer as well. So, um that or the state trust lands administration is kind of brustling at that and we could talk about that a little more if you want mm. but that that's a big part of the story as
0: well so there there's a private uh, landowner here right that's filed a lawsuit against bluff i guess they they want the they want to be unincorporated out of bluff right
1: indeed um that that's right so this kind of all controversy kind of started with this private landowner that was about about a square mile of land, 640 acres, on the Bluff bench. And they don't want to be part of Bluff. Uh, When Bluff incorporated in 2018, they didn't say anything. But last year, about a year ago, they decided that they don't want to be part of Bluff anymore. They don't want Bluff determining what they can do with their property or having any say that way. So they petitioned to disconnect from the town. But what that would have done is created this weird island like if you think about a town's boundary this would put a square mile in the middle of the town that's not part of the town so that creates these issues as to like how does the county provide services to this weird disconnected island um you know so the town rejected it um but then a lawyer for these private property owners reached out to the state trust lands administration and said would you be interested in in joining us in this petition to disconnect a larger piece of bluff about 40 percent of the current town's um footprint uh and so they asked the state trust lands administration if they would join them in a disconnect request and the trust lands administration said yes they would be interested Um, the town rejected that in the fall and now the private landowners have filed a lawsuit to force this to happen and the Trust Lands Administration has indicated they would like to be part of this lawsuit as well.
0: So the Trust Lands Administration, I think, is pointing out, well, the the only proposal is a solar farm, right? What, right. Uh, that is. Uh, yeah.
1: That's that's true. That's the only proposal there right now. But I think importantly, even if the Trust Lands Administration remains part of Bluff. Um, they have this power that supersedes cities. Like, they can still do whatever they want with their property, and the town can't do anything about it. Um, so I think, you know, residents of Bluff, Bluff just are looking at this and wondering, what is this retaliation? Why is this happening? Um, but the Lands Administration, their response is that, well, you know, Bluff kind of sort of signaled that they – they were going to reject the solar farm or not support the solar farm. That they'd rather have it in somewhere that you know was less in in the the, the viewscape of the town. If that makes sense, like somewhere less visual. Um, so the Trust Lands Administration feels that left isn't a good partner in helping them meet their objectives. So yeah, it's just really controversial. It'll be interesting to watch and see what happens with this lawsuit.
0: So in your story, you point out that uh, not only Navajo Nation uh, has poisoned water from past mining uh you pointed Ute tribe is grappling quoting from your story with uranium impacts groundwater at the white mesa uh, as as well
1: yeah our, our former colleague zach todd moore was sad that he left us last year but he did some really good recording on that about just the impacts from oil and gas development In the navajo nation it's more um uranium the impact their aquifer, but now the Ute nation is dealing with the oil and gas. So it's just, you know, another example of how tribes have sort of gotten the short end of the stick in a lot of this development and, you know, are still dealing with that outfall of all of it.
0: You pointed out uh, Montezuma Creek, the neighboring town to, to Bluff. Uh, there's another Episcopal church. They have a well, but the, you can't use that well.
1: Yeah. So St. John's has a well. It's part of Episcopal Church of Navajo Land as well as you mentioned and their, their groundwater is poisoned too their their water went bad so the St. Christopher's mission every week or every few weeks they truck a big tank of water to this church so they have clean drinking water um, so I just think that just goes to show how important this mission is and the, the community service is providing to this Four Corners region
0: yeah very important story thanks Leah for reporting this um,
2: yeah, for your
0: and you're, you're just sad for that, uh, that. That it's come to this right with the water. Um, so, um, Robert Gurkey, what do you think about this
2: one? I'm sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, the uh, it feels like it's a recurring theme, it's deja vu all over again, where you know, where the, where the nation kind of gets the short end of the stick and and you know, is left trying to piece together ways to sustain life, basically. Um, I thought the comment from Reverend Samson was pretty interesting when he says, we have no control over the, over what happens with the land around us, but we do plead with those communities to be better stewards of that land, knowing that water is very precious. I mean, that's what it boils down to. It's, it's survival in many respects. And, and you know, they're, they're now caught up in this litigation tangle with their fate depending on it. Um, it's a uh, obviously a bad situation to be in, and I think Leah did a really nice job in in laying it out in the piece. I'd, I'd encourage people to go read it because it gives you a fuller understanding of of these recurring themes, these sort of constant narratives that that crop up in in uh, on the Navajo Nation, um, where you know it's the haves and have-nots, and more often than not, the nation ends up being the have-nots. So. Um, so it, it's a sad story, and hopefully it gets resolved favorably uh, so they can keep, keep their ministry and, and keep their way of life.
0: Well, yes, I go to sltrib.com to, to read that and all the stories we've been talking about. We'll go uh, very shortly to our under underplayed stories of the week. Uh, before I do that, uh, Robert, maybe you could give us the, the one-minute version of the current state of the U.S. Senate race. Uh, interesting things happening there.
2: Sorry, probably no surprise there's a lot of people who are now lining up to to run for that open seat, the uh, seat that Mitt Romney had held until until, you know, just well, he still holds it, but he'll hold it until the end of the year. Um the big one, I guess, was uh John Curtis. He had initially said he wasn't going to run and he changed his mind. And he got into the race. Uh obviously House Speaker Brad Wilson, former House Speaker Brad Wilson, uh was sort of the the Front runner, I think, in that race before John Curtis got in. Uh, but there's a host of other candidates too. Caroline Fiffin, a former House staffer, very conservative uh, Republican, is running. Clark White, uh, Brent Orrin-Hatch, who is Orrin's son, is running for the seat that his dad held up until he turned it out, turned the reins over to Senator Romney, Trent Staggs, the to mayor, uh, sort of a pro Trump candidate, um, a guy named Chandler Chandler, Paul Stewart Miller. Oh, I'm sorry, Chandler Tandler. Paul Stewart Miller's running for House District 1. But so, yeah, it's a crowded field, particularly on the Republican side, on the Democratic side. Archie Williams is the only candidate who's filed. So, um, but they're going to be jockeying for the position. Uh, you know, Curtis seems to have, because he's represented obviously a quarter of the state already and has a bigger profile probably is the guy to beat right now, but there are a lot of people looking to beat him. So it's going to be, it's going to be a wild, at least a wild primary, uh, for that seat.
0: We'll be looking to the Tribune to give us, uh, the, the, the stories. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe we have turned the calendar. We are in an election year right now. Um, well, it's time for the underplayed stories of the week. We'll start with Emily Anderson Stern. What's your underplayed story of the week?
3: There's an interesting one that um is up on our website today but was is actually from ProPublica just about how you know Utah bills itself as a family-friendly state but it has some of the lowest access to childcare in the country. Um federal pandemic relief helped ease that but uh it, the the story essentially goes through the impacts of state lawmakers refusal to um to to increase funding for that as federal pandemic
4: aid expires.
0: All right. Check that out at SLTrib.com. Uh, Tony Semerad, what's your underplay story of the week?
4: I'm going to refer uh, your listeners to a story by my colleague, Shannon Solit that kind of updates uh, the travails of Salt Lake City based contractor Makers Line, which is in a, a world of, of financial hurt. Um, they've been sued for the 19th time um, in uh, second district court Um as they sort of face, uh, um, you know, uh, financial troubles. And this story focuses on a couple of buildings up in Ogden, um, one of which has had to be demolished because of the use of uh, ostensibly of untreated lumber in the building. It's a kind of fascinating look at uh, the repercussions of this uh, um, business, uh, these business problems that Makers Line is having.
0: All right. com for that one as well. Leah Larson, what's your underplayed story of the week?
1: Mine is by my colleague Julie Jag. Um, she did a story about how more of Zion National Park's um, reservations are being turned over to Recreation. Uh, dot, dot com, and uh, but she kind of goes into how this company is making all this money off of our public lands and public resources, but they're not required to disclose how much they're making. It was just really fascinating, so I, I highly recommend that story.
3: Yeah,
0: interesting story. Um sltrib.com for that one as well. Um, Robert Gerke, what's your underplayed story of the week?
2: Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna pick that one that Tony mentioned too. So I'll go with a different one. Um, Brian Schott did a piece about uh, Daniel Thatcher, a state senator, um, who is uh, indicated he's going to run against Salt Lake County Councilman uh, Dave Albert. Um, Dave has been a bit of a firebrand and a a lightning rod for controversy. Uh, Thatcher uh, has said that he wants to focus more on local issues that affect his community rather than statewide issues that he does as a Utah senator. Um, Albert, who is, uh, again, very conservative, uh, been at the forefront of a lot of these uh, culture war issues, said, you know, kind of questioned Thatcher's record and encouraged voters to take a look at. um, Said he's been a thorn in the side of his Republican colleagues in the Senate. So that could has have the potential to shape up to be a pretty interesting race, uh, again, in the Republican primary. So stay tuned.
0: All right, sltrib.com for that one. Uh, just briefly, I'll, I'll mention uh, Carmen Esbitt and Michael Lee, education reporters. They had an interesting story about uh, education reforms that are being tried uh, uh, around K-12 through 12 schools. They did it in a fun way—a shoots and ladders. Uh, is this reform a shoot or, or a ladder? Uh, Carmen Esbitt and Michael Lee's story can be found at sltrib.com as well. Uh, we uh, thank you very much uh, the reporters who've been with us: State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern, Real Estate reporter Tony Semerad, Water and Public Lands reporter Leah Larson, and News columnist Robert Gurki have all been with us. And thanks to you for being with us, and uh, hope you'll join us again next time for. Behind the headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Join us again next time.